<coughs> this section on uh, mindfulness of the body is called the Anapanasati Sutta. Subsequent to the first four steps of mindfulness of breathing, the Anapanasati Sutta's contemplation scheme directs awareness to the experience of joy, piti, and happiness, sukha. Since these two are factors of absorption, that is the jhanas, their occurrence in this part of the 16 steps has led the Visuddhimagga to the assumption that this progression refers exclusively to absorption experience. Possibly because of this assumption, even the first four steps of mindfulness of breathing in the Satipatthana Sutta have at times been identified as being no more than a concentration practice. Here it needs to be noted that the occurrence of joy, piti, and happiness, sukha, as steps 5 and 6 in the scheme of the Anapanasati Sutta, does not necessarily require the experience of absorption, since both can occur apart from such attainments. According to a verse in the Dhammapada, for example, joy, piti, can arise as a result of insight meditation. Thus, awareness of the breath while experiencing joy or happiness is not necessarily confined to retrospective analysis after emerging from an absorption attainment, nor to the stages of calmness meditation immediately preceding such attainment. As is is often the case, you have the commentarial um, uh, tradition taking a uh, a particular reference and then um, making an interpretation or, or sort of fixing it and these two qualities, piti, joy or rapture, and sukha, uh, happiness or contentment, uh, pleasure, uh, they, even though they are labeled as part of the sort of jhana factors, which there's, there's five jhana factors, uh, initial and sustained um, thought, vitaka and vichara, and then piti is rapture, uh, sort of a sort of energetic, um, uh, say, um, positive feeling, particularly associated with the body, and then sukha, quality of contentment, or a, a more kind of calm and stable kind of happiness, uh, piti sukha, and ekagata is one-pointedness. So those are the five uh, factors of, uh, of jhana, and as uh, uh, is the, uh, the uh, description of the usual progression of the development of jhana is that uh, in first jhana you have all five factors, and then uh, second jhana, uh, vitaka and vichara have fallen away. You have piti, sukha, ekagata. Then third jhana, um, piti has fallen away. You just have sukha and ekagata, uh, contentment and one-pointedness. And then in the fourth jhana, you just have one-pointedness and uh, equi- and equanimity. So those are the uh, sort of standard way of describing the the factors of jhana. And then what you have here is he's saying that the Sudhimagga is saying, well, because you've got in the, the description of mindfulness of breathing, that uh, when it's talking about looking at the breath in terms of feeling, so that the, the first group, uh, first approach to mindfulness of breathing is in terms of the body, the second group of uh, four qualities refer to the breath in terms of feeling, and amongst that you have uh, piti and sukha. And then the Visuddhimagra is saying, ah, therefore this must be just about jhana, but what the Venerable Analeo is saying was like, well, not exactly, because there's um, it, plenty of times that the, uh, the mind is described uh, by the Buddha as experiencing joy or contentment, uh, happiness, 
without there being a, a quality of absorption there. So I thought I might just, um, before going on any further, read a little bit of the Anapanasati Sutta. So this is uh, Sutta number 118 in the Middle Length Discourses. Uh, it's just called the Anapanasati Sutta. And um, the uh, uh, the brief the the, <laughs> the brief the brief <laughs> uh, so, so description uh, which I'll go through and uh, uh, it's a list uh, so a list of these um, four groups of four and each of the uh, of the groups is relating to one of the four foundations of mindfulness, the four satipatthanas. So the first one relates to the body, or physical side of it. The second one relates to feeling. The third one relates to mind, and the the fourth one relates um, to uh, to impermanence in particular, and to, or, or the um, sort of contemplation of the fourth satipatthana, dhamma nupassana, uh, either. Uh, you can uh, sometimes refer to as mental objects, but in this respect, it's very much uh, referring to the uh, the nature of the breath seen through the the perspective of of wisdom and re- in terms of dhamma with a with a big D. So I'll just read this through um, to give you a sense of these what they call the four tetrads or the four groups of four, and you'll see how they relate, or you'll uh, have a sense of how they relate to the four satipatthanas. Um, um, Contemplation of the body, contemplation of feeling, contemplation of, of mind, and contemplation of dhammas. Breathing in long, he understands I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he understands I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, he understands I breathe out short. He trains thus. I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body of breath. He breathes out. Uh, he trains thus. I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body of breath. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the bodily formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. So that's kaya, or rupa, the body. And secondly, feeling. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing rapture, piti. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing rapture. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing pleasure, sukha. Uh, he trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing pleasure. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the mental formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the mental formation. That's the citta-sankhara. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, tranquilizing the mental formation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, tranquilizing the mental formation. Then, uh, thirdly, he trains thus, I shall breathe in, experiencing the mind. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the mind. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, gladdening the mind. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, gladdening the mind. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, concentrating the mind. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, concentrating the mind. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, liberating the mind. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, liberating the mind. And then lastly, the Dhammanupassana, uh, the foundation uh, or the Satipatthana based on, on Dhamma. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating impermanence. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating impermanence. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating fading away. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating fading away. 
He trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating cessation. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating cessation. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, contemplating relinquishment. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, contemplating relinquishment. So the, and then the final paragraph says, Bhikkhus, that is how mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and great benefit. So that gives you a, a bit of a sense of how those four line up together. And um, let's see. Just then to carry on. Although the breath can undoubtedly be used for the development of concentration, the instructions throughout the 16 steps are invariably based on distinct awareness of each in and out breath. The central purpose of this distinction is to cultivate awareness of the impermanent nature of the breath. Any bodily or mental phenomena coming within the focus of awareness during the 16 steps are experienced against the background of the ever-changing rhythm of in-and-out breaths, which provides a constant reminder of impermanence. Thus a, closer ins- ins- sorry, thus a closer inspection of the 16 steps reveals an underlying progressive pattern which proceeds through increasingly subtle aspects of subjective experience against a constant background of impermanence. In contrast, on approaching absorption attainment, experience becomes more and more unified so that one is no longer clearly aware of the distinction between in and out breaths or related phenomena. Well, this is a, a useful point, I feel, that he's making here, um, that even though uh, only the fourth of those aspects of mindfulness of breathing particularly uh, speak about relating to impermanence and the arising and passing of the breath or, or reflecting on uh, the impermanent nature of the breathing, he's saying the very fact that that we're uh, focusing on the the rhythmic, uh, cyclical nature of the breath means that you've got um, an awareness of uh, of impermanence going on as a a background uh, feature or uh, that is part of the the, uh, character of the whole uh, experience. So that, uh, and in that, therefore, the, the appreciation of impermanence and change is feeding the quality of insight rather than just the, the quality of absorption or, or, or um, say, the um, uh, looking at the breath simply as uh, uh, an object to focus on and absorb the attention into, saying that, well, the very fact that it's arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing, this is giving us a huge clue like, you know, that everything is in a a state of change and arising and passing, and so that it's, uh, say, eliciting or drawing forth that reflection on insubstantiality, impermanence, change and uncertainty uh, as, a, as an element within the, the present experience. <coughs> the basic difference between mindfulness of breathing as a samatha, concentration, or as a vipassana, insight practice, depends on what angle is taken when observing the breath. Since emphasis on just mentally knowing the presence of the breath is capable of leading to deep levels of concentration, while emphasis on various phenomena related to the process of breathing does not lead to a unitary type of experience 
but stays in the realm of variety and of sensory experience, and thus is more geared towards the development of insight. These considerations suggest that the 16 steps are not solely a concentration practice, but also introduce an insight perspective on the development of the mindfulness of breathing. And, and uh, I would um, definitely say that, uh, uh, that, corroborate that also, because um, the, the, that fourth of the, the groups of four, the fourth tetrad, uh, as I was uh, just quoting it, you have that um, you know, the, the, the way that it's, uh, it's worded, um, I shall breathe in contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe out contemplating impermanence. Um, you know, that it's, uh, uh, I shall breathe out, breathe in contemplating fading away, um, breathing out contemplating fading away and cessation, so relinquishment. So that that, uh, that whole of that fourth tetrad is about uh, recognizing that uh, anything that's come into being has ended, what arises passes away, this is ceasing, this is, this is ending, this isn't substantial or, or permanent. And the, the standard, uh, or one of the standard expressions of, of stream entry is that uh, insight into uh, impermanence. Yankinchi samudaya dhammang sabantang niroda damanti, whatever is subject to arising is subject to cessation. Um, and so that that's, which is a, uh, obviously a major quality of insight. And then <clears throat> also within the Anapanasati Sutta, the Buddha speaks about how uh, did, from the very get-go he points out, yeah, he says, because when mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and great benefit. When mindfulness <coughs> of breathing is developed and cultivated, it fulfills the four foundations of mindfulness. When the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated, they fulfill the seven enlightenment factors. When the seven enlightenment factors are developed and cultivated, they fulfill true knowledge and deliverance. So you know, right there you've got a, a very clear progression that the Buddha is uh, speaking about, that uh, it's uh, the, the um, development of mindfulness of breathing is feeding right into the development of the uh, enlightenment factors, the bojangas, and then that leads to, uh, to their fulfillment leads to liberation. So it's very pointedly related to, to the development of insight and, uh, and liberation rather than just developing concentration and the, uh, the say, the, the deep qualities of absorption, which the Buddha says these are, are, are wholesome qualities. These are, are say, like the, the Brahma-viharas. They are radiant, they're bright um, qualities, they're wholesome, but they are conditioned. They're, they're, they are born and uh, impermanent and unsatisfactory not-self, so that they are a pleasant abiding, but they're not a, um, a state of enlightenment. So before going on, any particular questions or comments, reflections? Yes, James. Uh, when you're focusing on the breath, if you wanted to um, contemplate a Nietzsche, do you just observe like intuitively, or are you supposed to use your mind to think about it? This is arising, passing on. Um, either way, you can. Uh, a few words here and there can help. Just, just to note, to note now and then, oh, the breath is changing. This is this is the experience of change. And then, uh, often with, with using little verbal 
reflections or on or ways of noting like that. It's good to change the the, the terminology, change the words, because um, the the mind very. If you just keep repeating the same words very quickly, just <laughs> it's it switches off and they they lose their meaning or lose their strength. So that uh, just keeping that insight fresh. Um, but if if words if the if the attention is acute enough and there is that uh, like a direct apperception a direct uh, knowing of the quality of change then you don't need that that sort of leverage but if if the mind is is just sort of um, not appreciating that or is is sort of losing um, touch with that then that occasional little reflection is uh, is helpful. It's just like when the uh, I, I forget which sutra it is, but the the Buddha speaks about the the co- um, the conditioned nature of all of the jhanas and uh, and developing insight around around states of absorption, and uh, he says over and over again. But you know this is con- uh, but then you, the the meditator reflects. This is conditioned and thus gross, and there is that which is beyond it. So with first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana, then the arupa jhanas too. That this is conditioned and thus gross. When there is that which is beyond it, and then and he says all the way up till the the upper levels of the uh, arupa jhanas. Um, not that this is probably an everyday problem for or issue for most of us, <laughs> but he says that uh, up to the level of neither perception nor non-perception. You can reflect. The, the mind can reflect in that, that sort of verbal way. This is conditioned and thus gross, but there is that which is beyond it, um, all the way up to the the realm of uh, of um, infinite uh, 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 infinite space, the the realm of no thingness, the realm of infinite consciousness, and such like. That can, the mind can still reflect in that way, but at the level of uh, uh, of uh, the uh, neither perception nor non-perception, neva sanya na sanya, and then the highest level of, of absorption of cessation of perception and feeling. So it is impossible to reflect in that way. The, the mind is at too uh, acute a degree of refinement to form that kind of reflection. So you, it's sort of it's so totally one-pointed and um, uh, absorbed and. Uh, I say the uh, and non-conceptual <laughs> that the the mind can't form that reflection, but below that level, it still say, well, this is even this infinite consciousness or this this realm of no thingness. This is conditioned and thus and thus gross, but there is that which is beyond it. So, if you in a very pleasant state, you keep reminding yourself that this is impermanence. If you want, yeah, I mean, to support liberation, yeah, yeah. that. Uh, Sometimes there is the uh, inclination. If you're really enjoying your day at the beach, you don't want to remind yourself this is all going to come to an end. (laughs) But uh, to develop wisdom, that that and act to, in a sense, hold those experiences in a more skillful way, so that they are um, not obstructed by eye making and mind making. Is that 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 is what. Uh, in, a, in a way, it is also makes them more useful. They become a source of insight, but also it counteracts that um, uh, that sen- ten- tendency to to claim an experience. Uh, I'm experiencing this is my mind. Uh, I I have attained this, and there's a very the, the uh, very 
helpful expression at the end of the Panchataya Sutta, which is um, Sutta number 102, is it? Yeah, 102. Um, Oh yeah, this is the one um, about this is conditioned and thus gross. Like, um, so I, I can read this. Uh, this this is a very useful little passage where he says. Um, um, so he thinks he's talking about someone who's uh, entered. These uh, some recluse or Brahmin with a relinquishing of, uh, of views, etc., etc. Um, and complete lack of resolve on the sensual pleasure, enters and, uh, and abides in the rapture of seclusion. So going into first jhana, this is peaceful, this is sublime, that I enter upon and abide in the rapture of seclusion. That rapture of seclusion ceases in him. With the cessation of the rapture of seclusion, grief arises. With the cessation of grief, the rapture of seclusion arises. So that there's someone kind of uh, entering and, and leaving the states of jhana, just as sunlight pervades the area that shadow leaves and the shadow pervades the area that the sunlight leaves, so too, with the cessation of the rapture of seclusion, grief arises. With the cessation of grief, rapture of seclusion arises. So that uh, uh, that's sort of like on the edges of entering into absorption. There's, oh, that was beautiful, that went away. And, oh, here it is again. Just like walking between patches of sunlight and shadow. Then it goes on to say... Um, here Bhikkhus um, enters upon, abides in, um, say, the uh, the first jhana. Let's see. Um, da, 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 here we are. With the uh, cessation of rapture and seclusion, unworldly pleasure arises. He recognizes this is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having known there is this, seeing this, the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. And then, um, this is peaceful, this is sublime, I enter into neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Um, and uh, uh, with all of these, these different um, degrees of refinement, the same reflection is this is conditioned and gross, but there is a cessation of formations. Having known there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. Uh, here because some recluse or Brahmin with the relinquishing of views about the past and the future with the complete lack of resolve upon the fetters of sensual pleasure and with the surmounting of the rapture of seclusion unworldly pleasure and neither painful nor pleasant feeling so that the, the mind is in an extremely refined state he, reflect, he regards himself thus I am at peace I have attained Nibbana I am without clinging the Tathagata Bhikkhus understands this thus this good recluse or Brahmin, with the relinquishing of views about the past and future, regards himself thus. Certainly this venerable one asserts the way directed to Nibbana, yet this good recluse or Brahmin still clings, clinging either to a view about the past or a view about the future, or to a fetter of sensual pleasure, or to the rapture of seclusion, or to unworldly pleasure, or to neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And when this venerable one regards himself thus, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbāna, I am without clinging, that too is declared to be clinging on the part of this good recluse or Brahmin. That is conditioned and gross, but there is that cessation of formations. So, uh, sorry, that is conditioned and gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Uh, 
Having understood there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. Because the supreme state of sublime peace has been discovered by the Tathagata, that is, liberation through not clinging. By understanding as they actually are the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in the case of the six bases of contact, because that is the supreme state of sublime peace discovered by the Tathagata, that is, liberation through not clinging, by understanding as they actually are, the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger and the escape in the case of the six bases of contact. So I hope that's um, not too unclear, but uh, as, a, as a summary, that if the, um, even if the mind is in a, a very, very clear and beautiful state, that the very, uh, that the very uh, phrasing, the way the mind holds it, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. The I <laughs> is the big sort of bright red flag that says, hello! <laughs> this, uh, it's, that's what declares the clinging that is still there. And, um, and so then uh, the Buddha then defines, as, as he does in other places, um, uh, liberation through not clinging. And um, in another sutta, this Panchataya Sutta is 102, um, and uh, in another Sutta, number 37, uh, called the, the Lesser Discourse on the Destruction of Craving, the Buddha says about um, that uh, all Dhammas are not... Uh, basically summarized the entire teaching is that um, all Dhammas are not to be clung to. Sabhe Dhamma Nalang Abhinivesaya. When a bhikkhu has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, he directly knows everything. So if you want to know everything, all you need to know is don't cling to anything. <laughs> when he knows, when he's heard that nothing is worth adhering to, he directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, he fully understands everything. Having fully understood everything, whatever he feels, whether it's pleasant or painful or neutral, he abides contemplating impermanence in those feelings, contemplating fading away, contemplating cessation, contemplating relinquishment. Contemplating thus, he does not cling to anything in the world. When he does not cling, he is not agitated. When he is not agitated, he personally attains Nibbāna. So that, um, what this points to is that it's clinging is the problem. <laughs> That's the troublemaker. And, um, and then... The, the Buddha is pointing to over and over again. It's not to do with the refinement of the state, whether the mind's in an absorbed state or not in an absorbed state, or what is he absorbed into, but rather what's the, the quality of clinging. And then <coughs> the, and the way he points to that recognition of clinging is to, to know the six senses, and the, origina- the origination, the disappearance, the gratification, the danger, and the escape in terms of the six senses, so that the more that we, we know, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking and feeling, <clears throat> then the, that supports the, the uh, say, the origin and disappearance, the, the arising of perceptions and fading away of perceptions of different kinds. The gratification, the pleasant feeling that arises because of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. The danger, uh, 
um, what happens when those pleasant qualities are attached to or identified with uh, and then the escape so I'm recognizing if there, if there isn't that clinging then there is uh, the quality of liberation and freedom so he's uh, he's deliberately not pointing to sort of refined states or particular states uh, uh, to be aimed at but rather pointing to clinging uh, regardless of the, the state and so in terms of, of, um, of uh, developing concentration then that little voice that says but this this is impermanent this is this is conditioned and that's gross you know there is this is there is the cessation of formations there is that which is beyond this just remember remember so then it keeps it in context so then the the work that's that's done to say to focus the mind and concentrate it's it's helping to sustain that environment of you know this is all this is all uh, not self this is all impermanent and, and empty and therefore keeping it keeping the the effort to practice in tune with with dhamma as the the effort is made so that there's effort is being made but without clinging being increased so then the effort uh, the work that's done in the meditation then helps to reduce clinging and to to support liberation rather than increase clinging which sometimes the the development of of strong states of absorption or that that they uh, when the mind gets quite adept at concentrating it can be really nice to hang out at the beach you know hey <laughs> you don't want anything to come along and interrupt your enjoyment and so even though it's a, the when the mind is very focused or very bright it can be quite wholesome it can be quite innocent you know well my mind's not absorbed in anything unskillful it's very it's very wholesome and beautiful but the very uh, locking in of the attention on that and the unconscious claiming of it as I'm experiencing this is mine this is really good and I'm, I want to keep I want to keep this that then creates uh, all sorts of obstructions uh, in the present and also creates conditions for more obstruction in the future I just use better. Um, enjoy the day on the beach, mm. and at the end of the day, look back and say, "Oh, that was nice." But tomorrow is Monday, and I have to go to. <laughs> <laughs> but not, not, not in, in, enjoy it while it's there because it was, it, it was good and mm. it was wholesome and it was present. Mm. So why not? Well, you, as long as there is reflection afterwards <laughs> that it is conditioned and it will not be like that because yeah it's it's good to explore these things and see well what's what what's the what's the effect if you rouse that kind of um reflection on impermanence and emptiness while it's happening what's the effect if you choose not to but uh, uh, then what's the effect so then we we find out for ourselves uh, Okay, what's what's the difference between reflecting while you're at the beach or just after you've the day at the beach is over? Then then you you see for yourself what the what uh, what the impact is. So because it, it's also it's it's not the case that the Buddha every time he's talking about developing concentration he's talking about rousing that consideration. It's it's, it's less common that he talks about rousing that insight into impermanence while the absorption is going on. 
but uh, from time to time he does. You know, well, you know so that it, uh, it's good to experiment and, and see what effect that kind of uh, consideration has. Yeah. And particularly for, um, I, f- I tend to find that when the, the uh, eye-making and mind-making habit is identified and seen more clearly, that also tends to um, make the, uh, actually it helps the concentration <laughs> in a strange way. That the, the, the more there's a conscious letting go of, of self, then the, 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 the clearer the mind becomes. Okay, so to continue a little bit. An examination of the context in which the 16 steps are taught in the Anapanasati Sutta supports this suggestion that it's both supporting insight and, and uh, concentration. According to the introductory section of the discourse, the Buddha's rationale for giving this discourse was to demonstrate to a group of monks who were already using the breath as a meditation object, possibly as a concentration exercise, how to develop it as a satipatthana. So that was just the quotation I read earlier about how it fulfills the satipatthana and then it fulfills the factors of enlightenment and liberation. That is, the Buddha took up the breath as a meditation object in order to demonstrate how sati can naturally lead from mindfulness of breathing to a comprehensive awareness of feelings, mind and dhammas, and hence to a development of all satipatthanas and to the arising of the seven awakening factors. Thus the main purpose of the Buddha's exposition was to broaden the scope of mindfulness of breathing uh, from awareness of the bodily phenomenon, breath, to awareness of feelings, mind and dhammas, and in this way employ it as a means to gain insight. In view of this, it seems reasonable to to conclude that the purpose of the 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing described in the Anapanasati Sutta and by implication the purpose of the four steps of mindfulness of breathing in the Satipatthana Sutta is not restricted to the development of concentration but covers both calm and insight. And uh, if you wish, if you have a look at the copy of this book, it's got a very nifty diagram of all the 16 stages of um, of the uh, uh, Anapanasati um, and uh, sort of grouped into the four groups of four and so forth. So he's, uh, he's got a few handy little diagrams in this book if you search how to copy to explore that. Yes? I was wondering um, to what extent the order of the 16 stage matters because in my experience one can start at the beginning with just nothing long in and out or short in and out and then maybe look at feeling without looking at the whole body or look at any terrible way from the beginning and because some teachers seem to say that you should go one, two, three, four like that but do you think there's any relevance whatsoever to the whole? Uh, like, like many things I think there is a relevance <coughs> there is a relevance to the order but uh, nothing is fixed, and so that um, <clears throat> the uh, if you get too systematic, 
I think, oh no, it's got to be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and oh, no, I can't go on to, you know, even if some particular experience sort of matches, oh, well, that's, that's a, a stage 11 experience. Well, I haven't done 7 and 8 yet, so I can't, I can't, I can't focus on that. But that's what's actually arising and is sort of dominating the attention. Then that, um, Ajahn Chah would always encourage this, the, just working with what's present, and that if you try and force the mind into some sort of neatly packaged system, it just won't go. It doesn't. It doesn't fit. And that, uh, as we often have said in these readings, with the the commentaries and the Abhidhamma, they like everything in neat little boxes. You know, one A B C one two three everything in its neat little compartment. And the the mind and the world continually refuse to get organized in that way. <laughs> And so uh, it was also one of the reasons why Ajahn Chah didn't like to talk a lot about, say, the 16 stages of Anapanasati or the, or the 16 stages of insight that you get described in the Visuddhimagga. That, uh, say, uh, in the Mahasi Sadol, um method that they speak about a lot, very, very specifically the progress of insight through those 16 stages. And uh, Ajahn Chah tended not to make very much of that. Because he'd uh, he'd say, well, yeah, everyone is is different, and sometimes someone will experience you know stages one, two, three, and then they'll experience stage nine, and then fourteen, and then and then seven, <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't go in the order that it's it's there in the book, and then they they get filled with doubt, like, well, how can I be experiencing this because I haven't got to that stage yet, but this is what's happening, and uh, and he would. He would recognise. Well, sometimes stage seven does happen after stage thirteen. You know, <laughs> well, stage stage eleven comes before stage three. You know that you can't. It, it doesn't work in a systematic uh, way. And if you try and and sort of force your mind or try to judge your mind or, or sort of uh, make it fit into that prescribed um, pattern, then you just end up. Um, Making a, a, a lot of difficulty for yourself. You know, I don't know if you're aware of the, the the story in the Greek in the Greek myths of the bed of Procrustes. It's called the Procrustean bed. So this was a I forget exactly why he did it, but um, you know there's not usually a lot of uh, reasoning. <laughs> it's very convincing. Anyway, this guy had a, a guest house, uh, and. Uh, People, when people came to stay with him, he had this bed that uh, he, uh, he claimed it fitted everybody. Everybody who came to stay in his house, it fitted perfectly. Um, and his name was Procrustes. But if you got onto the bed and you happened to be uh, very tall, like uh, venerable Anejo, you know, it's nearly two meters tall. So if Anejo climbs onto the bed, and says, "Oh dear, his feet are hanging over the edge," in the middle of the night, Procrustes would come along, just saw the. Yeah, saw the legs off at the ankle just to, so that he fits the bed now you know this bloody you know blood gushing out all over the the sheets but uh, he fits the bed or if uh, see venerable Isaro who's uh, who's not uh, uh, who's not two meters tall <laughs> he comes along and says oh thank you very much I have to spend the night here and he says oh <laughs> yeah well you don't fit the bed so he would kind of put the uh, manacles on the the hands and the and the, the feet and stretch them out, <laughs> so, that, so all the, the the bones and the joints are, are stretched to to fit the bed. So that's called a procrustean bed. So you're you're stretching the thing to fit the the, the form, and uh, 
so that that's what these these kind of structures they they can be like that uh, and if we take a very rigid approach uh, oh no in the Abhidharma it says this or in the you know, 16 stages of insight it's like that or no that that you know, that can't be real rapture because you haven't got to, you know you haven't got past that stage of the of the short breath yet but if that's what you're experiencing there it is you know so uh, it, it's far. I, I feel it's uh, it's far more sensible just to be um, using those kind of uh, outlines as a sort of reference point, but pay more attention to what your own experience is and how things are working in your own mind and body, and and not trying to fit your own experience into that pre uh, uh, pre organized or sort of pre arranged pattern because it just keeps refusing to be that way. <laughs> the universe keeps revolting. It's anicca, you know, it's uncertain. Yes? I got listening to this kind of absor- absorption or like stages, like a, in my case, my meditation is not that great or I'm just beginner. But the strange thing is when I feel like some happiness or when I feel a little bit of joy during the meditation, or when I realize that, okay, my meditation is getting a little bit better than last month or something like something that kind of experience, immediately something happens to trigger my anger or hatred, and then the, the frustration is more deep, <laughs> so frustrating than ever. So it it's like a kind of like TikTok like mm-hmm. this, and then a little bit deeper happiness, and then a little bit deeper frustration, and a little bit deeper happiness, and then a little bit deeper <laughs> hatred or anger or mm-hmm. so sometimes it's it's really sometimes it's really overwhelming because when I feel the happiness, it's really overwhelming overwhelming happiness, and then when I feel the hatred or anger or really frustration is so deeper than ever so so it's like it feels like something can smell my joy more (laughs) because if someone triggers my anger I think that did that someone smell my joy so did she do that on purpose did she (laughs) she smell something that kind of you know this pattern well, there is a saying in the uh, uh, in the Mahabharata. There's a saying where say the the gods cannot stand human beings to have too much joy. They always come along to put some poison into the cup of happiness. That's what it's, uh, why I don't know, <laughs> but it's 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 an interesting it's an interesting phenomenon. And uh, I mean, there's two things there, as I, from what you're describing. One is that, because also, you know, like in the, something like Mahabharata, it says the gods come along and uh, add uh, some poison to the cup of joy. But there, it's also, I, I see, it's more of a, a kind of self, what they call self sabotage, which is a very interesting uh, quality where. When things are going really well, things are going really sort of smoothly, and there's a sort of ah, something within us wants to scramble that, or or it just wants to upset that. Like I, I notice that within myself, how uh, it, it's it's just, it's perverse. It's it's kind of it's weird. 
but it's a, it's a strong habit whereby uh, like because like I, I, I'm the senior person I'm often watching the clock and ringing the bell so that it, it's not uncommon for when the, there's a, a time in the meditation where the, the mind goes like it's really quiet everything is really spacious and, and really still then this, this thought arises look at the clock why? There's no need to. There's no need to look at the clock. It's like we haven't been sitting here that long. But something is saying, "Look at the clock," <laughs> and it's that self-sabotaging uh, reflex. So I'm really interested in that uh, that character. I'd like to meet him or her. <laughs> what makes you want to do that? But it, uh, just being able to identify that as a as a reflex, and what and what happens when you say no. <laughs> to that which wants to come along and scramble things because even though we call it self-sabotage which is a sort of psychological term uh, when exploring it it actually comes across more as, to me anyway as self-preservation it's a uh, oh this is getting a bit too real let's, uh, let's scramble this and let's, uh, let's, let's do something else you know that uh, because it's like the the self-centered habit, the e- ego-centered mind is is feeling its power slipping away. It's like the its voter base is disappearing, you know. That, you know my, and so it's like let, quick do, do something to get to, to get back in in power, get to get uh, away from that which is threatening my supremacy or my the the I as the central and controlling thing. So. Let's, let's do something to interrupt that, that insight. And this happens for, for many, many people in all sorts of different ways that you can, uh, you can see it operating in different, either small little momentary um, uh, uh, instances or on, on a larger scale, you know, with whole sort of life choices about well things are going really well things are um, you know it's I'm really it's really great life is really comfortable and uh, I feel I'm uh, really really content I think I'll buy a house <laughs> what <laughs> and the, the, the people can be you know like why do I want to buy a house Ajahn everything finally I got all my debts paid off and uh, you know my, my life is going really well my practice is really smooth I just decided, I just bought a house. It cost me you know, 400,000 quid. I've now got a massive mortgage. Why did I do that? And, uh, and, and I'm just using that as an example. And, and people, or I just got pregnant. How, how did that happen? I was just, just got my last batch grown up and now I've got another one on the way. Why? <laughs> and that... It, it can be completely unconscious or it can be quite conscious, but often it's that the the I, me, my feeling that doesn't want to lose its its control. And so then sometimes that depth of reaction like, no, <laughs> I want to get away from this, it's, it's proportional to the, 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 the depth of insight. That, oh, this really isn't me or mine. Oh. <laughs> Quick, scramble that, cover it up, do something, get busy, go read a book, argue with someone, <laughs> <laughs> complain about the weather, something, anything. 
And it, it's, it's really, I find, quite intriguing to watch because when the, the mind is moved like that, it's really, uh, it's, it, that uh, energy behind it is quite, uh, it's revealed by the fact that something you doesn't really care what to get excited by or upset by or anything will do. And sometimes I'll, be, I'll, I'll notice this sort of hunting, like looking, there's got to be something I can, I can get an identity out of and like some, something I can attach to or chase after or resent or fear or something. And it, and it looks in all sorts of different directions. And sometimes you just sit there going, no, 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 no. No, no, and then, then you keep for, uh, letting go of that, and not giving it any fuel. Not le letting it, whether it's going to a, something to desire or something to get annoyed with or something to get have an opinion about or a regret about or a plan, and you keep saying no, 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 no. Then, then eventually, what happens is that oh, actually, I really should do such and such. <laughs> you see, the mind goes after some object. And then on a, a almost sort of in the background, can you feel, you can in the background you can feel the sense of ah, whew, yeah, <laughs> got out of that one. <laughs> like the ego is is has got a reprieve. So, just being able to watch that dynamic happening, to be able to, because even when the, there's a sort of violent reaction, like ah, I really hate that. There's something that knows that, ah, I really hate that feeling. And to, at that time, to be f as fully conscious as possible, oh, this is that uh, angry, reactive feeling, that's what this is. Look at that, interesting. So that you're not suppressing it, or, or creating self-criticism out of it, or resenting the fact that it's there, but then, oh, look at that one. And then, to, in my experience, that's what helps to to um, say, keep withdrawing the or dissolving the causes for that eye making and mind making, and to just let those reactions happen. You're not feeding them, you're not suppressing them, and also you're not you're not getting interested in them. So, oh, it's that one again. Okay, okay. <laughs> to not even get too worried or concerned, not not too interested, and then it, it sort of you get a, like a burst of. of energy, like a burst of reaction. Oh, okay, there it goes again. Okay, that happens. And then that uh, you're, you're letting go of those effects of those past causes, but you're not planting causes for that same kind of reactivity again for the future. We're weird creatures, us humans. Yes, Mariana. Uh, I just want to discuss a little bit about is it true that there is no action at all? It's all in reaction to something in accordance with what you're explaining here. Uh, well, um, in terms of Buddha Dhamma, yeah, there is action, karma, and uh, its its effects. It's like Buddha Buddha said, uh, karma is intention. When there, there's a, an intentional act, then it has a, an effect that is related to the intention behind that act. I mean, all things are impermanent, but insofar as the, uh, 
the way that the, the laws of, of nature work when there's a uh, an action is taken then it has it has effects and uh, the Buddha uh, in his own time there were various philosophers and spiritual teachers who would say and there's no such thing as karma there's no such action yeah all action is completely empty and and uh, it's all an illusion and the Buddha said no that's that's uh, that's not the correct view that uh, there is there is action and, and its results um, but it, it, it's but it's also not self but there are the laws of nature of action and uh, and their and the result of that action and when that is explored in in our own experience you can see see how that works but he did specifically counter that idea that the there, there, I mean, all action is intrinsically empty or, or a, 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 it's illusory. So I don't know if that's helpful as a response. Sorry, really, no. <laughs> no, I don't uh, understand what you mean. Uh, discover that everything that we do is reaction and it's not an action. Action might be for convenience to on a commercial level or whatever, but uh, it is a reaction to something that is unknown because we, we, we have no ability to know it. Um, I wouldn't put it quite that way myself. The, I mean, they the more there is mindfulness, then the more the action is based on on a uh, an understanding or an attunement to the way things are. You can't necessarily you can't name all of the um, the attributes of of, the, of nature or the the all the karmic influences going into a particular moment, but um, when at least the way I use the word reaction, it's, there's a kind of unconsciousness there. But uh, the more that there is, so the more there is mindfulness and wisdom, then the more that uh, that the way that the mind responds to the conditions of each moment is based on on an attunement to what's going to be a be- uh, what attunement to the reality and what's going to be beneficial, what's going to be harmful. So it's not just automatic or blind. I mean, it's it's based on uh, what's experienced in actions to, to greater or lesser degrees, but um, it's not it's not fixed or it's not blind. Uh, if there's uh, and the more there is wisdom, mindfulness, then the more that the choices that are made lead towards benefit for, for oneself and for others. Mary, you had a question. Sorry, with, with the point of no self. Or not self. Or not self. None of us have got there yet. Um, with this point in mind, and then looking at karma and saying that the point of karma is the intention, doesn't that mean that if none of us have reached the point of not self, <coughs> then um, an intention let's say it's not what somebody might say is a wholesome intention, um, then 
surely we're innocent, even if it's unwholesome, <laughs> because we haven't realized much self. And then also with mindfulness, yes, mindfulness. At what point can I be clear that truly, um, yes, I'm, I can observe something, right? I can observe something in myself. But then different voices can come up. And one voice can say, no, 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 no. But another voice can say, yes, 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 yes. Yes, as they do. Why not? <laughs> so then, of course, these are kind of egoic voices because I haven't experienced this place of not self. So, in a sense, am I not just innocent? <laughs> With whatever the intention is, even if this person over here says, well, that was unwholesome, somebody over here can say, well, that was wholesome, that was okay. Uh, not in the eyes of the law. <laughs> no, it's, yes, uh, yeah. Well, the, the, the people who are with the blue uniforms and the hats. <laughs> Yeah. Not the law in another, yeah. And Saudi Arabia can mm. take something they chop off hands. So here we don't do that. Well, it it, it depends. Um, the the way that the, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a large question, but uh, the way that the the Buddha spoke about it, there's two different kinds of sila. There's the natural sila and there's prescribed sila. So natural sila is the first four of the five precepts so that the um, so to to take life to to steal to engage in sexual misconduct or to to lie these regardless of time and place regardless of societal mores there's always a, a painful uh, result that comes from acting based on those conditions uh, well, I'm just wait wait wait, wait. So that the Buddha calls that that natural sila. So irrespective of of the country, irrespective in terms of a human, the human realm. If you're a human being, then that uh, there is that's the, the natural order of things. Then pres- prescribed sila is like say um, choosing to not eat in the evening. Or choosing to not wear earrings or makeup or to play frisbee. These are um, that that's a, a, a precept that you you take on as a as an additional thing. Or, or the precept to say choosing to drive on the left rather than the right. It's it's, a, it's an agreed societal norm. Um, so they have those two uh, two varieties of of sila, and so that. Um, the uh, the idea that that we're all innocent is that well you can you can take the sort of ultimate reality escape clause but yes your yeah, the the uh, my intention is empty the um, the uh, the jewelry shop is empty the 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 gold earrings are empty the policeman is empty the the prison cell is empty the the uh, sen- the uh, <coughs> presence of the other prisoners in the jail they're all empty. True, <laughs> but you the, on the on the surface level, the level of conventional reality, you still got the <coughs> the the police, the court, the prison. Uh, those are the perceptions that are going to result from from stealing the 
their jewellery. For example, somebody might steal something and not get stolen, whereas, say, you know, say here, somebody might steal something of value and maybe they don't get caught. But in, say, another country, you can have a situation where by a child can steal food because they're starving and they get And then maybe they steal again and they have another limb amputated. Their intention is merely to get food to eat. But, what, what, are you, but what are you asking then? So I, I, my, my initial question was, aren't we all innocent? Well, on the so ultimate level, there's the, you can say everything is not self. But it's, on the conventional level, it's like, no, we're not all innocent. It's like there's a, one, there's a wonderful Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. which says, uh, Calvin starts off by saying, nothing I do is my fault. Uh, and uh, I, I have to try and remember that. He says, I am the, um, uh, I'm the, the, the diseased result of a relationship of co toxic codependency. <laughs> so, and I, therefore I'm not responsible for any of my actions. And, uh, and, and then uh, Hobbes, the, the tiger, kind of gives him this look. Sort of, this, one of us needs to have his head stuck in a bucket of iced water. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's very nice, but I still think... <laughs> well, you can, you, can, you can think what you like, but it's just... Uh, well, it's not what I think. Also, I mean, there's recently been talk around um, criminals. <coughs> so neuroscientists have been looking at the brains of particularly... <coughs> and they say that actually some of them have actually been born... Uh, brain damage, or because of particularly high levels of testosterone, they are particularly violent. So this now raises the question of whether somebody who is violent and maybe murders somebody, perhaps actually they they don't have control over their brain chemistry. So they're only acting out something that they're wired to do. So in a way, it's being suggested but in the future, in courts, lawyers could actually say, well, this man is actually innocent because he's the victim of his brain chemistry. But, uh, well, I mean, it's, it's, I'm also aware it's 7 o'clock and these are large issues, but the point is the society has laws to contain people's behaviour. So even though someone might have a good reason, or they can say it's their chemistry, that if someone has got so much testosterone in their system that they are liable to get into murderous uh, activities, the society needs to contain those persons out of respect and uh, the concern for the welfare of everybody else. So to me, that innocence or guilt is, is, is all relative. No, I, of course... It's gone 7 o'clock. The conventional level, <laughs> so. they can be found guilty, but on a dharmic level, I'm wondering if we're not all innocent. Well, it, but the dharma is, is, uh, is not just on the ultimate level. It's on the human level. You're sitting on a chair because your knees are, are resistant to sitting on the floor, right? On the dharma level, you don't need to sit on a chair. On the human level, you do because your knee hurts, right? So... You can't, on a real level, excise that human aspect. We, on a theoretical level, we can, but on the real level, then we live as human beings. We have bodies, we have personalities, we have lives and stories. So, you, on a, uh, 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 you can say ultimately that's the case, but you can't. Uh, 
in, in actuality excise the the uh, the ultimate level from the the human level as well, and so that it's uh, 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 it's can be helpful to consider well ultimately yeah all things are, are empty but also the how do they function together on the con- on the conventional plane that's why we have monasteries that's why we train ourselves that's why we have rules and, and forms that they're not for keeping the ultimate reality in order <laughs> they are for helping to create conditions whereby our the, the conventional forms can be crafted and nurtured to uh, more uh, fully and completely support the realization of that that ultimate level. And while on the conventional level, we live in a way that's harmonious and and supportive and non-injurious to each other. And on that note, I think we'll wind up.